Good morning. It's good to see everybody. I'm Danny Martin, the pastoral resident here at Five Oaks Church. Special welcome to all of you and to all of you who are watching online. I think my mom's watching this morning. Good morning, mom. (laughs) Who did the 6K yesterday? All right, a whole bunch of you. Looking fresh, looking well exercised. I heard Kyler made a a wager with middle school that if they got 30 middle schoolers there, he would shave his beard into the number six. And I saw a big number six on his beard. So So they did a good job, the kids came out for the 6K. Well, I'm really thankful that they decided to let me back up to talk to you again today. I survived Pastor Henry's hazing. I made it, I'm here again with you. But he's not done with me yet. He's asked me to talk about something that All of you were hoping to escape this weekend. Work. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I have to bring Monday into Sunday. But I've got to tell you a story. I have to tell you a tale. A tale of two companies. Back in March, Jonathan Hagee, who's one of our pastors here, and I attended the Made to Flourish conference in Kansas City, Missouri. And one of the goals of the conference was to discuss Christians and work. And one of the keynote speakers shared a story about two Christian companies with American founders that wanted to use their businesses to reach non-Christian people in Malaysia and to introduce those people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So the first company went with the mission of telling people the gospel, the good news that anyone, regardless of their past or present, can have a future with God by confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and believing that God raised him from the dead. We can know God. He can break our vicious cycles. He can restore our broken relationships. He forgives us of the things we will not forgive ourselves of. It's his free gift to all of us through Jesus if we will turn from our way and put our trust in him. It's an important message. And the first company went, people, went to tell people in Malaysia that message. The second company went with the mission statement of doing good work, providing their employees good wages, and pouring surplus resources into the local community so they could share the gospel. And after two years, the companies reported how many people had come to saving faith in Jesus through their work. The first company, whose mission was to proclaim the gospel, reported that in two years, two people did so. Two people came to know Jesus. The second company, whose mission was to do good work, bless their employees, and pour surplus resources into the community, reported 98 people had come to Jesus in two years. Both companies had the ultimate goal of helping people meet Jesus through their work. Both companies went with good intentions. But the second company, which chose to do good work and bless its employees and community, made the bigger impact. Their good work earned them the privilege of being heard by the people they sought to minister to. It showed that the gospel is more than a proposition, but a gateway into a new way of living altogether. And the results, I think, speak for themselves. Because people don't just hear what we say, they see what we do. And it's growing more and more important in our own culture, 
for Christians to show that our faith is a faith that does good work. Because God is not just the Lord of our church services. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. We can't content ourselves thinking that our faith is about giving God part of our weekend and checking the box until next time. To do so is small theology. And when our theology is small, the Christian life seems compartmentalized and irrelevant to those who most need to see that it is anything but that. When it comes to showing our not yet Christian neighbors, coworkers, friends, and family that the Christian life is a meaningful, seven days a week kind of life, work is one area we often don't think about. Just like how that second company in Malaysia reached people through doing good work and blessing its employees and community, we too can show people through good work that God is the Lord of all spheres of life. What many churches have implied or frankly outright said over the past century is that there are three types of Christians. Pastors, missionaries, and the people who pay the pastors and the missionaries. (laughs) The laughter tells me that you're familiar with this. And if you're in that third category, hopefully you like your job, and hopefully it pays well, but what matters most is that you give money to the church. That you come to church once a week, twice if you're a super Christian, and serve in some way if you're not so busy, because your role is to support the real workers, the real workers. And I suspect that on top of many Christians unfortunately believing that real work is for church leaders, and other work just is what it is. Many Christians have even come to believe that the Garden of Eden was a big vacation, work is God's punishment for sin, and heaven will be all about floating around on our own private clouds playing harps like Wiley Coyote when he loses to the roadrunner. He goes and that's what he does. But all three of those ideas are false. Work is a big part of all of our lives, whether we work a job we're paid to do or whether we, work, we regularly occupy our time in some other significant way, a lot of unpaid work that many of you are doing. And work is not a punishment for sin. Work reflects the image of God. In the creation account, God works. The first words of the Bible are, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word create carries the nuance of fashioning or shaping, like a potter shaping clay. In other words, work. Work reflects God's character. It expresses his desire to organize and shape creation. And humanity is created in God's image according to Genesis 1, which will be our first of several texts today, by the way. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open that to Genesis 1, first chapter, first book. And if you don't have one with you and you're here, it should be one just below the seat in front of you. While you're opening there to Genesis 1, I'll remind you that one of our core values at Five Oaks is that though God's word is sometimes mysterious, it does not have to be a mystery. If you will commit to reading the Bible and asking God to shape you through it, he will do it. And we'll have our 
scripture today from Genesis 1 will be read from some friends of ours from Scatter Global. Let's listen. Hello, Five Oaks. My name is Todd with Scatter Global, and my colleague Hannah and I are excited to be here with you this weekend to explore how we can take all of who God made us to be and all of the gospel to all nations. And we believe that a part of who God created us to be is reflected in our work and can and should be used for his glory. So today we are seeing many people who have taken their job to places where Jesus is less worshiped and their impact is both exciting and God glorifying. So stop by and visit us at our table in the comments so we can share these stories with you and even talk about how Scatter Global can help you find a job and live missionally both right here where you are today or in a place where the name of Jesus is currently not known. Take care and God bless. Hi, my name is Hannah with the Scatter Global team and today's scripture passage is Genesis chapter one, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit. Illuminate your word and guide us to your truth. Lead us into a deeper knowledge of who you are and teach us to walk step by step with you. Amen. So if we're made in God's image, as Genesis 1 tells us, and work is something God does, then part of reflecting God's image is doing the kinds of things God does. This is why God tells humanity to be fruitful, to fill the earth, to subdue it and to rule over the animals, which to be clear is about stewardship, which is the wise management of someone else's property. And these action words reflect the authority and acts of God. Work is more than what we do to pay our bills. Work is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. One of the things that Genesis 2 tells us is that when God creates Adam, he did it so Adam would work the garden. Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And if you don't know, everything's fine at this point in the story. There isn't yet human sin, and if you don't know what sin is, that's anything that goes against God and it separates us from him. So God puts Adam to work before sin. Work comes at a time when God looks at everything he made and says, it's very good. Work is not bad. Work is both divine and human. 
a God-given vocation. The problem is that sin twists good things for bad purposes. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, it was what theologians call the fall. And after the fall, work then took on bad dimensions. We read in chapter 3, verse 17, Cursed is the ground because of you. You is, he's talking to Adam in particular, that singular you. Because of you, Adam, through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. Work was supposed to be great. Like all those times you do a good job on something and you stand back, you have that satisfaction of a job well done. Get yourself a lemonade. Get yourself a beer if that's your sort of thing. Okay, That's what work was supposed to be like. That's the norm, not the exception. God didn't intend for work to stink. And now sometimes work stinks. People ask, how is work? It stinks. It's the weekend. Don't make me talk about Monday. I don't want to think about it. So we live in attention now. Sometimes work is full of toil and drudgery. I think of the worst job I ever had. I worked as a cashier at a badly managed home decor store that hardly ever had customers. And usually, we only had two employees who would work at a time. One had to work, work in the front, and one had to work in the back. And I was often stuck up front alone. And they were very concerned that someone was going to run in the building and steal the cash register. And so they, they said, you can't go more than 20 feet away from the cash register at any time. And there's only so many things you can clean before everything's clean within 20 feet of you. <laughs> Don't know if you realize that. So basically, I was stuck for eight hours a day inside an in invisible doggy fence. I'm in the invisible doggy fence, and they had us play the same five albums over and over again. What were some of the albums? Here's one, Awesome 80s. <laughs> Spoiler alert, not awesome. <laughs> not awesome. To this day, I cannot listen to Heart of Glass. <laughs> it does, it gives me flashbacks of being trapped in the invisible doggy fence <laughs> in home decor purgatory. So that's the sort of silly side of it, but the truth is that sometimes work can be much worse than that. It can become humiliating. Your work environment can become toxic when you have little recourse with obnoxious customers or abusive bosses or coworkers who have it out for you. Work can become dehumanizing even when people are forced to work against their will because of unjust institutions that practically or literally enslave them. Work can become drudgery when people's potential to do good work is squandered and they are instead treated like nothing more than cogs in someone else's machine. The eminent paleontologist and atheist Stephen Jay Gould said something about this which, with which even Christians can agree. I am somehow less interested in the weight and convolutions of Einstein's brain than in the near certainty that people of equal talent have lived and died in cotton fields and sweatshops. When we recognize this as Gould the atheist himself even did, we're remembering God's original purpose as his, for us as his image bearers and partners in stewarding a flourishing world. 
that sense of wrong that all of us feel when we think about something like this confirms what Genesis 1 through 3 tells us. The world is not like it's supposed to be. Wheaton College professor Vincent Bacote gives us a little bit more hopeful side of that coin. That was kind of the tails. Maybe here's the head side of that coin. Though the entry of sin is real, all is not lost. The fall does not obliterate the image of God in humans. As the divine image remains with us, so does work itself as a component of our essential dignity. You may be familiar with the concept of already not yet. It's a theological idea. It basically means that as Christians, we experience right now some of what it means to live forever with God, but we're not yet there. Death is still real. Sin is still a struggle. We experience loss. We're not yet fully enjoying what God has promised to everyone who will come to him. God has called Christians to show the world what it looks like to live in the already, not yet. And when we grasp that work is a good, essential part of reflecting God's image, it stops being nothing but a burden. It starts being a way to show the world what it looks like to know God. Many Christians know Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 by heart. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Thank God. Thank God he's been gracious to us. We don't have to fix ourselves. Anybody can come to him and he'll do the fixing. But we often leave out the very next verse. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Christians are not saved by good works, but we are saved to do them. Good works reflect the image of God as well as the new creation we experience as followers of Jesus. Revelation 21 describes the new heavens and the new earth as a holy city a kind of new Eden or a picture of what Eden was supposed to become had things not gone off the rails. In this new city, Christians will be the people God always meant us to be. God will make us the best versions of ourselves in him, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We will have resurrected bodies. We will eat. We will rest. And if work truly is an essential part of what it means to reflect God's image, we will continue doing good work. Second topic of discussion today is this. Work expresses the meaning and value of purpose. This is a hobby horse of mine, so get ready. In his autobiographical graphic novel, Blankets, author and artist Craig Thompson shares his coming-of-age story across several eras of his life, including how he eventually turned away from Christianity after being raised by conservative Christian parents in rural Wisconsin. Actually, I think it was Marathon, Wisconsin, to be specific. At one point in the story, Craig Thompson takes the reader back to a moment in his childhood Sunday school class where the teacher tells the kids that Christians worship God through singing, which is true, 
But Craig tells the teacher he isn't good at singing, but he likes to draw. Couldn't he praise God through drawing? And the teacher responds, come on, Craig. How could you possibly praise God with drawings? Using excellent drawings, Thompson portrays this moment for the reader with gut-wrenching detail, the way the teacher turned away from him as she said this, rolling her eyes at the idea that God would ever accept works of art as praise. Craig Thompson never forgot the shame of being told in front of a room full of his peers that his passion for artistic work could not bring praise to God. That Sunday school teacher, who was probably more ill-informed than ill-intended, I would assume, missed the memo. We read in Exodus 31, starting in verse 1, this. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Ori, the son of Hor, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for working gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed Aholiab, son of Achisamach, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I have given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you. And to set the scene here, God is describing in Exodus 31 how to build the tabernacle and who should do it. And some Bible translations will call the tabernacle the tent of meeting, and that's a great way to think about it. Tabernacle is kind of a big word. So the tent of meeting was where God dwelt and where sacrifices were made before Israel had a temple. The tent of meeting was a visible reminder of, to God's chosen people that he was always with them. So building this tent of meeting was not Moses the prophet's job. It was not Aaron the priest's job. It was the job of the artists and the craftsmen, the workers. We're told that Bezalel was filled with the spirit of God to accomplish this work. It was not meaningless. Why didn't Craig Thompson's Sunday school teacher know that God wants to use all aspects of human life and culture so we can bless our neighbors, build his church, and glorify him? And that when we find meaning in the work he's enabled and called us to do, we find meaning for our lives in him. Just like Ephesians 2 told us. Very early in my faith, the church where I came to know the Lord hosted a Christian musician for a performance. And I, I honestly don't remember his name. I, I wish I could. He wasn't famous. It wasn't like Chris Tomlin or anything like that. It wasn't a famous guy. But that musician shared his story. He shared that he had previously lived the, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle. And when Jesus found him in life's gutter and offered him new life, that man took Jesus' hand. And Jesus, as he does, took that man's whole life, including his music. And I've never forgotten how that musician described what happened next. He put it like this. He said, Jesus took my guitar and drove the snake out of it. He gave it back to me, and that's why I'm leading you in worship today. See, Jesus didn't smash the guitar. He drove the snake out of it and gave it back to him so he could use it to do good work. I've been an author for about as long as I felt a calling to ministry, 
and I struggled a lot early in my walk with Jesus, wondering if literary work is valuable at all, as I routinely stayed up way too late (laughs) writing and reading about writing and reading. It's something I've learned through years of work and study in this field, and that overlaps a lot, actually, with my work in ministry, is a great quote that stuck with me, and it's, our culture's theologians are its storytellers. Media and the arts reveal our culture's beliefs and anxieties. In his book, Art for God's Sake, Philip Ryken writes something that's worth quoting at length. In the last century, many artists, writers, and musicians have become increasingly cynical about the possibility of knowing the truth. In many cases, they have abandoned the quest to discover and express transcendent meaning. Art has also suffered a tragic loss of sacred beauty, as many modern and postmodern artists have been attracted instead to absurdity, irrationality, and even cruelty. Stuart McAllister was right when he wrote that much of the energy and effort of our artists and cultural architects has gone into debunking, dismantling, and deconstructing all that is good, beautiful, and respected to be replaced with the shallow, the ugly, the ephemeral. In many ways, the art world has become, in the words of critic Susie Gablick, a suburb of hell. The arts have shown us for some time the absurdity of life without God, just as the biblical books of Judges, Ecclesiastes, and Job too. Unfortunately, many Bible-believing Christians have abandoned the worlds of art and literature because they have been assured by well-meaning but ill-informed brothers and sisters that there is either no value in an artistic vocation or that the arts will necessarily corrupt Christians. And as we Christians have fled the worlds of art and literature to our cottage industries of Christian art and Christian movies and Christian books and Christian fast food that we eat in our Christian coffee shops. It has exacerbated a deeply troubling reality. Our cultural architects no longer simply discuss absurdity, they embrace it. They embrace the idea that there are no truths, only truth claims. And the way to find meaning, if any of us care to find any meaning, is for all of us to look inside of ourselves, to see who we really are deep down, to live our truth that nobody had better question, by the way. And that's how we'll find some private sense of happiness and meaning before we die, if we would like to do that. As a result, some form of this message has been preached to generations of Americans, primarily through media. And broader society no longer has coherent responses to the most basic questions that orient a person's life. Where do we come from? What do our lives mean? How should we behave? Where are we going? Ask 10 people, you'll get 11 answers. (laughs) And so, as an example, you'll hear now and again absurd stories from the art world about invisible invisible sculptures sold for thousands of real dollars. A banana duct taped to a wall, displayed in museums and sold for millions. Or worst of all, something I've seen with my own eyes. A person's bodily fluids on canvas, titled and dated, hung in a gallery for all to see. A suburb of hell indeed. 
Yet we would do well to remember that for generations, Christian leaders have told Christians who wanted to bring their Christianity into the arts that if they wanted to write, they should write devotions, and that if they wanted to do art, kids' ministry could use their help. And that's about it. The Catholic author Flannery O'Connor, who many of us probably had to read for homework in high school, said this about her vocation as a writer. I have found in short from reading my own writing that my subject in fiction is the action of grace in territory held largely by the devil, i.e. a suburb of hell. If you believe in the redemption, your ultimate vision is of hope. Flannery O'Connor's work, you'll recall, was pretty dark. But its purpose wasn't to revel in darkness. The purpose was to utilize darkness to show light. By highlighting what's wrong, she's whispering to the reader, come and see what's right. When we choose to abandon whole spheres of human life, we're saying that we don't think God cares about those things. But when we choose to work at our vocations and to work well, whether in business, in ministry, in the trades, in the arts and media, in anything, we're speaking into our spheres of the world and saying that God not only has something to say about it, but that he is in the business of driving out snakes. When we express hope through good work, we proclaim that we see our lives in light of God's promise that everyone who calls on the name of his son will live forever with him. We proclaim that whether we are made, that we are made in his image. We proclaim it whether we are holding a hammer or a paintbrush. Or to put all of that very, very simply, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And before we get into our very last point here, we've got one more quick video from our friends at Scatter Global. Let's check it out. Right now, you are doing something somewhere. Because that's what you were made for. God designed us in His image to do work, to do good work, to be a good healthcare worker, to be a good manager, to be a good teacher, to be a good software developer. You are doing something somewhere. And when you do it well, you honor God's design for your life and make His kingdom visible. But what if instead of doing something somewhere, you could do that something anywhere? What if you could be a good healthcare worker in Bali? What if you could be a good manager in Cairo? What if you could be a good teacher in Lisbon or a good software developer in Moscow? We are made to live the gospel, sharing our occupational talent in cities and communities across the earth. You don't have to choose between work and mission. Every day, God is scattering more people doing good work around the globe to impact lives and bring Him glory. Your work is more than just doing something somewhere. You were made to change the life of someone, somewhere. As many of you know, uh, 
many of you don't know, but many of you do actually. Before Sarah and I came here to Minnesota, we lived and worked in northern Utah. I studied uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was kind of a, a study topic of mine for many, many years. It still is. And so I, I was working there in Christian mission uh, to Mormon people. And Sarah joined me there, and that's where we started our marriage. Um, Utah is without doubt one of the most difficult places in the United States to serve in Christian ministry. It is a mission field. Only within the past 30 years have Christian churches really been able to take root and grow in this area. Uh, Before 30 years ago, it was basically most churches were about 100 people tops, and people were ready to get out of there. They, They usually were sent for work, and they were like, we don't like it here, we're getting out of here. So they were transient churches, 50 to 100 people. Even now, most churches are quite small, often led by skeleton crews of half-time pastors and part-time staff. One of the long-time pastors in the region is Scott McKinney, with whom I interned 10 years ago. Scott's church, Centerpoint Church, is smack dab in the middle of the most densely Mormon area of Utah. They call it Happy Valley. It's got a real Stepford Wives vibe about it. When people ask how Centerpoint has managed to survive in a hostile religious culture, and it is a hostile religious culture, just because Mormons are nice doesn't mean that they necessarily want other people there. Pastor Scott often points to this passage from Jeremiah 29, where the prophet Jeremiah has written a letter to Jews who had been taken into captivity in Babylon. We read... This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. By positioning themselves not as outsiders surviving in enemy territory, but as a prosperity-building, truth-proclaiming embassy of God's kingdom, Centerpoint Church has gone from about 50, 50 regular attenders in 1990 to close to 1,000 at present which is impressive by any standard. I would say that's impressive here, but unheard of in Utah, and downright miraculous in Provo. Christianity in Utah, in some ways, is 10 years behind the rest of the U.S., and in other ways, it's 10 years ahead. 10 years behind because it's a pretty conservative and isolated region. 10 years ahead because Christian churches in Utah have never not been in the minority. Christians in Utah have always been an exiled people, strangers in someone else's holy land. And when Christians operate from a position of cultural and political weakness, we discover strength in our reliance upon God rather than in our own strength, in our own resources. We grow more charitable in our relationships and more innovative in our outreach and ministry because we have to. As our culture continues to secularize and diversify, the lessons we can learn from churches in places like Utah are going to appear more and more prescient. 
Pastor Jonathan joked about it last week, and it, it does, it bears repeating. If someone's ever talking to you and you want them to go away, just tell them you're a pastor. Just say I'm a, they'll start moonwalking away. Okay, they got to get out of there. Suddenly they realize they had something. Because there's a general distrust of Christian leaders in America. The bad stories make a lot more press than the good ones. The vast majority of good pastors serving faithfully. No, that's not sexy. We need to see this guy messing around, laundering money, etc. And so people now have an aversion to church and Christian leaders. So ministries like Scatter Global are really appealing to me because I want to see healthy churches in places like Utah multiply. And the ability to build healthy ministries and relationships will in many cases be benefited by Christians engaging their neighbors in real life without an intimidating title. Which means we need Christians with a sense of mission and outreach in all areas of life, including regular workplaces. Ministries like Scatter Global are on the cutting edge in giving Christians an opportunity to connect with non-Christians in shared life as they work for the prosperity of the city God has called them to. So I told them last night I'm going to keep harping on it. Todd with Scatter Global, I searched your job board for Utah. There wasn't anything on there. We got to get some Utah on there because we really need Christians in the workplace there meeting their Mormon neighbors. It's a great American mission field. And for any of you who may have been thinking about serving in ministry, but you don't have the time, energy, or debt ceiling to go to seminary, Scatter Global is going to be a great resource for you to work and serve toward the prosperity of the place God has called you, wherever that might be. So do make sure before you head home, chat with Todd out there from Scatter Global. Ask him how your profession might be a great missional opportunity. <clears throat> Jesus taught that his followers' lives are like cities on hills. In the ancient world, there wasn't much light pollution. So a person brave enough to travel at night would be able to see the light of a distant town from really, really far off. And the Christian life is like this. It's a light in the distance that draws the weary traveler toward it. When we make Jesus our Lord, he chooses to use us to reach people who need him. We know he does this through our love, mercy, and generosity, but he also does it through our work. Work, whether at home or abroad, with our brains or with our hands, gives us the opportunity to share close bonds with those we otherwise would not. It allows us to be living witnesses to those who don't know Jesus when they see how we respond to challenges at work and in our lives. We can be examples of all God offers through our work. Because people are watching us like they watch those two companies in Malaysia. They watch us as they work beside us. They see the proof in the pudding. Writing near the end of his life, Simon Peter reflected on his apprenticeship under Jesus and he said this to the Christian churches in Turkey in 1 Peter chapter 2. For you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Peter isn't talking about super Christians here. He's talking about all Christians, most or all of whom 
that he's writing to would have had regular working professions. Peter tells these Christians that God's people are his priests. He doesn't say, now that you're Christians, you have a lot of studying to do to become priests. And by the way, that's your new official job title, so forget everything you used to know. A priest is a mediator, like a representative or a diplomat, between God and people. And Simon Peter tells us that Christians are everyday priests. This means that when people see that we have been forgiven of our sins and changed through Jesus, they're encouraged to wonder why. When they see that even though work stinks sometimes, we ultimately live lives full of hope and purpose, and they'll wonder why. We must show others that our faith in Jesus is more than just personal preference. Like that second company in Malaysia or like growing churches in Utah, we have to invest in people so that when we invite them to learn more about Jesus or to join us for church, it won't be a sales pitch, but a real invitation from a friend who they know loves them. Work well done attests to the truth that part of our purpose is to reflect God. Work was not absent in the Garden of Eden, and it will not be absent in the new heavens and the new earth. Our efforts as we work in this life, regardless of our vocation, proclaim that our lives have hope and meaning. And this helps show people what Jesus will do for anyone who will come to him. Heaven will not be about floating around on our own private clouds, flucking our harps without a care or duty. The Bible paints us a picture of a city, of people everywhere. We'll have bodies. There will be rest. There will be good work. I look forward to working beside all of you in the kingdom to come. Until then, let's use our work, whatever it may be, to show God's goodness and to invite others to join us. As we reflect on all God has done for us, we celebrate unity with one another and with Jesus through communion. He invites us to eat together, to remember the forgiveness of our sins, our new life in him, and the fellowship that we have found together. We read in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Thank you, Jesus. Let's eat it together. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Jesus. Let's drink it together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you created us in your image and breathed life into us. We thank you that you have given each of us unique gifts that we can use to serve you, provide for our families, and build a flourishing world. We thank you 
that we find our ultimate sense of meaning and purpose through knowing your son, Jesus, and that through work, we declare to the world that everyone can find hope in you. We thank you for all the people we're blessed to know through our work. Let our lives be cities on hills to them. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear those who are ready to meet you. Help us to pray for them. Help us to invite them. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.